0: The book of Hosea is where I want to direct your attention this morning. It is our custom in our church to walk uh, carefully through books of the Bible, and we are uh, doing that with the book of Hosea these days. You'll find the book of Hosea. Hosea is one of the most unusual and obscure books of the Old Testament that we have walked through so far. Um, uh, Hosea is after the big books of Isaiah, well, after Psalms, and then there's Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the little book of Daniel, and then the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 6, I'm going to read Hosea 6, 1 through chapter 7, we're going to read both of these chapters this morning as we begin, you're going to be tempted, because we're reading a lot, you'll be tempted to let your mind wander, don't do that, and uh, think about it as we go through, what's here that's unusual, that is, uh, stands out in the text, I wonder what you observe uh, as we uh, read this morning, see what you notice. Here is God's word, Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but He will bind up our wounds. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will restore us that we may live in His presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. As at Adam they have broken the covenant, they were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of evildoers, stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, carrying out their wicked schemes. I have seen a horrible thing in Israel. That Ephraim is given to prostitution. Israel is defiled. As for you, Judah, a harvest is appointed. Whenever I would restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I would heal Israel, the sins of Ephraim are exposed and the crimes of Samaria are revealed. They practice deceit. Thieves break into houses. Bandits rob in the streets. But they do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds, their sins. Their sins engulf them. They are always before me. They delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers burning like an oven whose fire the baker need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises. On the day of the festival of our king, the princes become inflamed with wine and he joins hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smolders all night. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings fall and none of them calls on me. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf, not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against him. But despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. Ephraim's like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. When they go, I will throw my net over them. I will pull them down like the birds in the sky. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. Woe to them because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak about me falsely. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds. They slash themselves appealing to their gods for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. I trained them. I strengthened their arms, but they plot evil against me. They do not turn to the Most High. They are like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. Uh, David Head wrote a prayer. It's a new prayer. It's based on a prayer of confession uh, from the Book of Common Prayer. You might appreciate what he writes. Listen to this. He tried to update the language a little bit so it would be more in keeping with our view of ourselves and, and how we stand before God. So listen to what he said. This is how it begins. Benevolent and easygoing parent. We have occasionally had some minor errors of judgment, but they're not really our fault. Due to forces beyond our control, we have sometimes failed to act in accordance with our own best interests. Under these circumstances, we did the best we could. We are glad to say we're doing okay, perhaps even slightly above average. Be your own sweet self with those who know they are not perfect. Grant us that we may continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep our self-esteem. And we ask all these things according to the unlimited tolerances which we have a right to expect from you. Amen. Well, you won't see a prayer of confession like that in our bulletin anytime soon. Um, It's a parody of a prayer, clearly, and it's meant to provoke you to think about how you view yourself before God. We have a pattern. It's as old as humanity itself. Instead of minimizing the presence and potency of our guilt we use phrases like errors of judgment and failures. When we apologize, we say things like, I'm sorry I was rude, but I am... And you fill it in. I'm sorry I was rude, but I am really tired. I am really stressed. I'm really busy. We have excuses. And, and actually, if the, if the mistake, the error that we make is great enough, we find reasons all over the place to excuse it. Uh, I'm sorry about that, but, I, you know, I just had a, I had a poor relationship with my parents, and that's why the, the way I am. Um, I worked with a woman once who was convinced that she was the way she was because she didn't like her name. If her parents had given her a different name, she would have been a more pleasant person. <laughs> she had a lot of improvement to me. Uh, it's, uh, if I, I, I'm not uh, kind because I grew up in oppressive circumstances or I had an unhappy life or, you know, actually maybe my failings are really just your fault, you know. Um, you should be happy to know that, that if you um, uh, want to fall into that pattern, that Newsweek magazine has good news for you. Uh, science can help. There was an article published in Newsweek a few weeks ago. It was called 25 is the new 18." And it was about uh, scientific studies that demonstrate, uh, they do brain scans of people, and they find that the part of your brain that is involved in your moral decision-making, your moral compass, isn't actually developed until you're at least 25 years old, which means that uh, if you're a teenager or you're, you're in your early 20s, you should be less liable for your decisions that you make. Why? Because of science. Um, you may have, in fact, if you're like 22 years old, you should be pitied because you have an adult body and you have an adult strength and you have an adult m- emotions, but you don't have an adult's ability to morally manage your life, so you should be pitied. <laughs> this is an argument that was uh, came up in the uh, not-too-long-ago uh, trial of one of the Boston Marathon bombers, Jokar Zarnayev. Um, His his lawyers argued that he was too young, he was only 19, he was too young to be able to withstand the uh, pressure from his brothers, uh, the coercion, to be involved in in the the bombing. So it wasn't really his fault. Uh, A jury didn't agree with that claim. So if the age of accountability is no longer 18, it's now 25, let's see if we can get science to raise it a little bit more. I vote for at least 50. Right? We all have a vested interest in diminishing our accountability and lowering it, don't we? Because if I'm not as responsible for my actions, or if my actions aren't really that bad, that means that you're not really responsible for your actions either. Isn't it true? Huh. The problem with that, that um, idea, that pattern, is that the prophet Hosea is not going to cooperate. We've talked about this. In fact, Hosea is a bit like a forensic pathologist. Hosea pours over the human soul and finds all sorts of evidence of our rebellion against God and its eternal, awful, horrible ugliness. Some of you are beginning to understand this emphasis that we see over and over again in the book of Hosea. Um, I was talking earlier this week about our path through the book of Hosea and how we were going to go. And usually I have these things laid out uh, several weeks in advance, but not I haven't with the book of Hosea yet. And I was talking to Ryan Witherell. We we're talking about planning the services and how it's going to go. And I said, you know, maybe I'm just going to really do like two or three chapters at a time and we'll just breeze through the book of Hosea. And Ryan said to me, well... Uh, how, though, if we don't understand the true nature of the problem, will we be able to truly appreciate the solution? He used my own words against me. It's not very nice you remember God's strategy in the book of Hosea? So uh, it starts with Hosea's marriage. Um, Hosea's audience is the northern kingdom of Israel. They are rich, prosperous, uh, uh, powerful people who are involved in all kinds of idolatry. God sets before them Hosea the prophet who married a woman who was unfaithful to him. His wife was unfaithful to Hosea, just like the Israelites are unfaithful to God. Human rebellion against God is not just a question of breaking rules. It is a question of breaking relationship. It's like cheating on your spouse. It's infidelity. It's that bad. You can see that even in this text as I read it in Hosea 7.13. God says, I long to redeem them. God is not like an RA handing out demerits. He's, he's a scorned husband. His heart is broken. And then, then there's Hosea's children. He talked about them. Three children with three unusual names. A boy named Jezreel. Jezreel reminds a nation that it's full of violence, just like uh, the recent massacres that had taken place in the valley of Jezreel. Then that daughter named Lo-Ruhamah, not loved. Is there anything sadder in the world than a daughter who is not loved by her father? Lo Ruhama. The nation is going to know very soon what it's like to not feel the warmth of God's love. God loves, God disciplines those he loves, but the discipline is often painful, and they're going to feel that pain. And then there's a third child, a son. Lo Ami, not mine. You'll be hard-pressed, Israel. You are God's people, but you're going you're to be hard-pressed in the, the years to come to see how being God's chosen people has any benefits. And feel, in fact, it's going to feel more like a liability than a benefit, not mine. Now, we have before us here this morning Hosea 6 and 7. It's another passage with the theme of unfolding the full extent of the problem of our rebellion against God. It's a passage that's filled with images. I wonder if you noticed that as we are going through Hosea is very imaginative when he writes, Uh, he says, Ephraim is like this, Israel is like this, Uh, your love is like this. There's a lot of images in the text. In fact, that's what I want to draw out this morning. I want to to talk to you about four images in the text. There's four in the text. I'm going to add one. I'll explain that a little bit. What does it really mean to a people? What does it really mean for a nation to to be in rebellion against God. This is a passage that will help you answer the question, how bad off am I really? When all around us there is this tendency to try to minimize uh, the extent of our rebellion against God and minimize the ugliness and the horror of our condition before God, how bad off am I really? What does this rebellion against God really produce? Four things, five things. What does it make you? Number one, it makes you as faithful as fog. As faithful as fog, which is not very much. That's in verses 4 through 11 of chapter 6. Can you see that? In verse 4 it says, What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. I'm not sure how early you get up and get going in the morning, but uh, Thursday morning, my alarm went went off. I listened to the radio for a few minutes, and the traffic report, they were saying over and over again, oh, the fog, the fog, it's terrible, the fog is everywhere, and Stella and I went for our walk, and it was foggy. Um, Sometimes in our house, we wake up in the morning and look outside the back window, and we say, where did the church go, because it's disappeared in the fog. Well, it wasn't, wasn't that bad. We were walking around, I went home, and then uh, I had an early meeting at 7.30 at uh, Manor Middle School, and I walked, turned onto Ironstone Ridge Road, and the fog was thick, thick along there. You could almost not see the entrance to the school. Fog. But then by 9.30, it was all gone. Sun had come out, fog was gone. One of the evidences of rebellion against God is that our love for him fades like fog. You come and you weep on Sundays and you laugh and you smile. But by Tuesday, you have no thought at all for God. You made promises on Sunday about how you're going to change. And then by Tuesday, you're cursing out your neighbor and surfing for porn on the Internet. Uh, verse 6 talks about this a little bit more. Let, let's move through the text a little bit, though. Verse 4, you see again God's anguish, his brokenheartedness. What can I do with you? What, what am I going to do with you? What, verse 5 tells us what he did do. I will send you prophets. The prophet's words are going to come with the severity of a knife that's going to cut you to pieces. That's what God's word sometimes does to us. That's what the Bible sometimes does. It cuts us to pieces. And then verse 6, we see here what does this faithless, this foggy faithfulness look like? I desire mercy not sacrifice. What does he mean by your love disappears like the morning mist? He means it's, it's love that delights in sacrifice. It delights in the performance of religious duties, but it doesn't have any consistency. It doesn't have any mercy. It's only external. It's only duty. It's only, there's no depth. There's no substance to it here. This verse is not trying to eliminate sacrifice he's not trying to say that sacrifice is unimportant but what god is saying here is that i am not impressed with your outward show of fidelity to me that doesn't last that doesn't have any substance that's why james says what does james say true religion is to care for widows and orphans There's there's more involved in that. He's getting at the point that true faith always shows up. It shows up throughout the week. As we go on here, um, uh, in this text, Hosea makes references to Israel's past. He's going to do that a lot in the the weeks to come as we move through this book. He's going to talk about past events. Um, he, He mentions three places. Adam, Gilead and Shechem. Do you see that in verses 7, 8, and 9? Actually, verse 7, we we struggle here to know, is he talking about Adam, the person who was not faithful to God, or is he talking about a city named Adam? Well, it's a little bit of inside theology, inside baseball here to debate this too much. We won't do this there are some who, who want to very, very carefully see in Genesis, in the early chapters of Genesis, a covenant between Adam and God. It's not explicit in Genesis. In fact, this would be the only place, if he's talking about Adam the person, this would be the only place in the Bible where a covenant between God and Adam is mentioned specifically. But I don't think it's a person. I think he's talking about a place. Because the parallel, it says, as at Adam they have broken the covenant, they were unfaithful to me there. It's a place. It's a place. Of Gilead is mentioned here. Gilead is a place that was specifically associated with Jacob. We sang this morning uh, to the God of Jacob. And, and Jacob was around Gilead a lot. And, and there's this mention of footprints. You what Jacob's name means heel grabber is what it means. I think what he's saying here is that the nation of Israel has all of Jacob's terrible qualities. Jacob was Manipulative. He was a scoundrel of a man. And, and Israel is, is, is like that. Shechem. Oh, Shechem. What do we think about with Shechem? Well, Shechem was the place where Levi, the father of the priests, Levi was the, the, it's from Levi's descendants that priests came. Shechem was the place where Levi and Simeon joined together and they tricked the city of Shechem. They fooled the men in Shechem and then they went and murdered them all. Sounds very much like verse 9, what's, what's happening here. All, all of the bad things that have happened in their past just show up in this generation. It happens sometimes, doesn't it? You, you think about how you can trace a line of alcoholism in a family or abuse or uh, just bad, dangerous, violent behavior. You can trace that through. It seems what, that's what Hosea is doing here. The whole nation, what a mess. No fidelity to God. Think about this carefully and consider how your Sunday vows match your Thursday life. How do those things go together? How does what you sing about on Sunday show up in how you live on Thursday? The dew comes every morning. It's there every single morning. Like your resolve, maybe every week comes. Which lasts longer, the due or your fidelity? Now, second here, rebellion against God it makes you faithful as fog, uh, not much. And secondly, though, it makes you exposed as a spotlight. Makes you exposed as a spotlight. That's an emphasis in, in, in uh, six eleven through seven two. I added the image, there's no spotlights in the Bible, Just there's never a spotlight in the Bible, but I added that image because I think that's what, what he's getting at here, the concept. Verse 11 says, whenever I would restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I would heal Israel, the sins of Ephraim are exposed and the crimes of Samaria are revealed. Now the text makes it sound like God is going to come and help them, but then he sees their sin and oh no, he's not going to do it when really probably what's going on is that the exposure, the revelation of their sin is, is part of God's healing process. This is how God works in people's lives. It demands the full exposure of their sins. It's going to have to come out if it's going to be healed. They can be exposed even though they practice deceit because God sees and he knows everything. Verse 2 They do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds. In fact, it's all that God can see, it seems. Their sins engulf them. They're always before me. Hosea is a brutal book. It's about God's love for Israel. Oh, he loves them. He loves them. He loves them. But God's love is not sentimental and it's not ignorant love either. He knows. He knows completely their sin, the full extent of it. it reminds me a little bit of, of what the Bible says in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You, you can't fool him. You can't deceive God. The issue here is your honesty about your true condition before God. Are there large pockets of your life that no one knows about? There are large things that you've kept hidden from other people, things that that you think they don't know. It's not a very healthy position to be in. And actually, it can be deceptive because you can start thinking that there's large pockets of your life that God doesn't know about either. When I was in seminary, one of my professors recommended a book by a, a scholar named Mortimer Adler. Mortimer Adler wrote a book called How to Read a Book snappy title haven't gotten through it or any other since <laughs> how to read a book is what he wrote he was at a tea it was an afternoon tea and he was mad he was there having a discussion and it turned into an argument and he got mad and he stormed out in fact he stood up and he walked over and and uh, uh, uh walked out of the room and slammed the door shut he was so mad a little tense and somebody was trying to break the tension a little bit and she said "Well, well at least he's gone and the hostess said, no, he's not. That's a closet he just walked into. <laughs> this is our attempt to get away from God so that he can't see us, so that he doesn't know. One wonders how long Dr. Adler stood in that closet and how you gracefully get out of the closet that you slam your door, yourself in. Maybe you think to yourself, if people knew the real, the real you, if they really knew the real truth about you, who you really are, they'd never befriend you. If, if you really knew the real me, you would not want to be my friend. And maybe you think the same thing about God, too. That if you really acknowledge before Him who you really are, there's no way that He would forgive you. And yet... Proverbs sixteen six. This is a wonderful verse. You should keep this in mind. Through love and faithfulness. We've talked about both of these words before. It was in Hebrews chapter four. It was so important. Love, chesed, and faithfulness, Emmet, truth, truthfulness. Through love and truthfulness, faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Both of those things. We deal with a God who knows us completely, fully, and yet loves us still. There's never going to be a point in time in eternity when God comes to you and he says, you know what? We were looking back through the records and there were some things that we overlooked and you really just don't belong here. There's, there's some offenses that you committed that I really." I let them slide and I just shouldn't have. Some of you have that fear. Some of you have that fear that God's going to expose you like that or that, that He's going to find out something about you that is going to make Him change His mind about redeeming. You have that fear. The text is, is very clear to us. He, he sees everything. Which is why we sing, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, My sin, not in part, but the whole. All of it is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That's very good news. Exposure. Now, let's move on here. Uh, uh, Third here, what does rebellion produce? Rebellion against God is as destructive as an uncontrolled oven. It's destructive as an uncontrolled oven. That image of an oven is used repeatedly in verses 3 through 7 of chapter 7. Uh, one of the commentators, by the way, in the book of Hosea that I read said that this is one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament to understand what's going on. <laughs> That's really encouraging. He said the Hebrew is hard to figure out. It's hard to translate. It's hard to understand what's happening. The problem, clearly the problem that he's getting at has to do with the leadership, with the kings and the princes and the priests. They're they're mentioned in here, kings and princes are mentioned in here multiple times. What he's getting at here, I think, is he's talking about how corruption at the highest levels is there. It's terribly corrupt they are, and it is destructive to all of society. Now, why would he mention that? Remember that in the Old Testament here, the nations of Israel and Judah, the kings and the priests, he goes after the priests earlier, the kings and the priests have special covenant relationships with God. We sometimes talk about Jesus being the prophet, priest, and king. You're familiar with that line? Well, well, Jesus, uh, well, the kings in Israel and the priests in Israel are supposed to in some way point ahead and represent Jesus. They have this covenant relationship with God and uh, they're failing miserably. But even if you remove the covenant image from this text, you just know, you know that those who are in charge, that, that the leaders often have a detrimental effect on those underneath them. When, when the leadership is corrupt, it, the whole society is, is broken. Uh, uh, have you ever heard the expression a fish rots from the head? Well, that's what he's talking about here. Now, verse 4 makes reference to a baker who doesn't tend his oven, the baker doesn't stir the oven. This is strange. Strange. Normally, if a baker doesn't attend his oven, what happens to the oven? It goes out. The fire goes out. You, some of you, heat your homes with coal or with wood. You know you've got to tend the fire. Well, here the oven is not being tended. It's not being uh, 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 served cared stirred and instead what's happening is that it is it inflamed the oven the oven burns even hotter I, what i think is he's getting at here is that the kings are neglecting their duties and in the context the sin of his advisors the princes they're raging into this blazing fire that's happening it's destructive they're describing here a government, a nation, whose government is being taken over by those who only want power for themselves. They don't want to serve. They just want power for themselves. Now, it's an election year. It's hard for us to understand how this could be. When leaders are corrupt, it inevitably reaches down, and, and, and the society, the, the economy, the people, the poor, all of them are going to get Burned. Hard to imagine how that could be. Our primaries, of course, our primary elections are nothing but celebrations of truth and beauty and kindness and justice. No nation can survive for very long when it revels in rebellion against God. How do we pray for the election? I pray that God will give us leaders that are better than we deserve. Now, we think about this passage even more. I want to think about how, how might we think about how this applies. There's, there's a generic leadership emphasis in the text. That, that's there too. But you know, the United States doesn't have a covenant relationship with God. There's no sense in which our presidents function like Israelite kings or the senators are like priests. There's no sense in which that's true. But there is, if you think about it, there is a covenant people that God has put in our nation a covenant people that God has put in our country to represent Him. I'm thinking about the church itself. The church is God's covenant people, commanded by Him to be in our nation as salt and light. But what happens if the church itself is an object of corruption? Aren't there there congregations all over the country who have... Capitulated in their responsibilities and ceased speaking for God, and and what does it do to a nation when that happens? I came across a couple of examples of that. There was a, a there's a man by the name of David King. He's a pastor in Chattanooga. He was visiting another church in Chattanooga and he saw on the dry erase board some notes from a recent class that had taken place. Maybe it was a membership class. I'm not sure. Uh, but the notes were still there on the board. And, and up on the board, it said, why people like coming to our church? Why why would people choose to come to this church? Here were the three reasons that were listed on the board. Number one, inclusion and tolerance. Number two, downtown missions. And number three, religious diversity. The strike is an odd list. Um, Inclusion is a buzzword. You know what inclusion means. Inclusion is a word that means uh, approving actions that God condemns. That's what it means in this world (laughs) No, Religious diversity. God's not the author of confusion. How can a church that bends so easily to the spirit of the age speak prophetically for him in any way? How can they do that? Now, uh, he, he went to a, another another church, he was visiting another church, and uh, one we might recognize, this fits in our camp more, it's got our names and they sing our songs, and um, they had a bulletin announcement, here's what the bulletin announcement said, it advertised Superhero Sunday on May 8th, the, t- uh, the bulletin said, come dressed as your favorite superhero, lunch will be provided, all first time visitors will receive a free ticket to see the new Captain America Civil War movie another form of capitulation. It's, it's not quite as ruinous. It's trouble, isn't it? Now, uh, uh, we don't want to make it a practice to spend our time criticizing other churches, but maybe by, by contrast, you can understand why we do what we do. We really believe that the gospel is good and we really believe that it's true. We really believe it's true and good and good enough. And that we should celebrate it and sing it and proclaim it and study it. And we believe that it is sufficient. Even when we don't wear tights and capes, we believe that it's sufficient. No one wants to see that anyway. Now, number four here continues the oven theme. The oven theme continues in the text. Rebellion against God makes you as delicious as burnt bread. Which, again, is to say not much. As delicious as burnt bread That's in uh, verses 8 through 10 of chapter 7. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf, not turned over. Maybe I should say burnt pancake. That might be better. Flat loaf. Another image of of neglect. Do you ever use your uh, broiler to cook at your house? Um, We grew up with a gas stove. We didn't use an electric broiler that, that often. But when I got married, my wife, when it was cold outside, she would use the broiler to cook hot dogs. What I have discovered over the years of watching my wife use the broiler to cook hot dogs is that uh, hot dogs underneath the broiler go from not done at all to charcoal briquettes in about 32 seconds, which means you have to watch very, very carefully. You have to pay attention, which uh, with, in a busy household is not, not easy to do. One of the ways you can tell your hot dogs are done under the broiler is the smoke detector is going off. Now this is, this, there's neglect that's going on here in the nation, and one of the consequences of this neglect is that the nation is despoiled by other nations. The text says, his hair is sprinkled with gray. Actually, that's probably a reference to gray mold growing on this burnt bread. It's just a gross mess. And what's the worst, what's worse about it is that the people are so ignorant, they're so arrogant, that they don't even see it. This is the odd reality of pride, isn't it? Pride is, a proud people think they see themselves with microscopic accuracy. They think they see themselves with microscopic accuracy. And they think they see you with microscopic accuracy too. Because they understand themselves completely and they understand you completely. That's why they have superiority. That's why they have the attitude of superiority to you. That's where pride comes from. I know me, I know you, and I know I'm better than you. Right? But the Bible warns repeatedly, pride is actually a form of blindness. Blindness. Pride is a form of not seeing, and it can be dangerous. We talked about how God knows you perfectly. He sees your faults. He sees those hidden faults that you think no one sees. God sees and knows the sins that you refuse to see. That's actually why the book of Proverbs commends you to have faithful friends who are willing to wound you. When was the last time that somebody... Uh, said something to you that was wounding? Someone sat down with you and had a hard conversation with you. If it's been a long time, I wonder if the smell of burnt bread is over your life. Now here's image number five. Rebellion against God makes you as senseless as a dove. As senseless as a dove. That's in verses 11 through 16. Ephraim is like a dove, the text says, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. I have a bird feeder in my window, in my office, and I have over the last few months, a uh, few weeks, gotten some bird visitors. A cardinal comes every now and then, and I have a sparrow that comes, a couple of sparrows that come and visit. And uh, they, they are jumpy birds. They um, any sense at all that there might be something dangerous I, I sit in my office and I look at them and if I move too fast at my desk pff, they're off and they, they fly erratically around the, 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 uh, the, the parking lot looking for, for a safe place to land Israel's like this that's what Israel's doing they're faced with threats and they run from nation to nation trying to find some sort of security what's foolish is that they don't ever turn to God for help <laughs> I I would help you, but you're flying all over the place. In fact, I'm going to bring you down, he says. This is idolatry. Uh, Verse 15 says, I trained them, I strengthened them, and they won't turn to me. So he laments, verse 13, woe to them. God's love for his people, God's discipline for his people together in this passage. This is idolatry, turning from Savior to Savior to find the answers to your troubles. It happens here on a national level. It happens personally all the time. You know people like this. Maybe you are one. You are moving from thing to thing to thing to try to find something that's going to make you happy, that's going to satisfy you. Relationship to relationship to relationship, uh, job to job to job, church to church to church to church, hobby to hobby to hobby. I'm going to find something that's going to make me happy, that's going to satisfy me. And when that happens, you know what the Bible says about you? You are deceived and senseless. This is the extent of the problem. Corruption, destructive influences, hidden sin patterns, addictive behaviors, pride, refusing to heed what God has said, faithlessness. And all of them are addressed here in this passage. All of them are here, and what makes it so tragic is that Hosea has, before he went through this list, he had called them to repent, and they didn't listen. We should look briefly at that repentance call right at the beginning of chapter 6 before we finish. Look what it says, Hosea 6. All these terrible things about them. Before that, Hosea had said, Oh, Israel, come, let us return to the Lord. That word return is that great Hebrew word shuv, shuv. It, it's used anytime you see in the Bible the word uh, in the Old Testament, turn or return to the Lord. It's probably that Hebrew word shuv. It means, it means to repent. That's return. That's return to the Lord. It's paralleled a little bit in verse 4. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. There's that word knowledge, acknowledge. In the book of Hosea, it's so important. It means knowing God and responding accurately to Him. Knowing the truth about Him and then truthfully responding. That's what that word knowledge, acknowledge the Lord, means. What will God do in response well, He's going to reverse all of the discipline that He has brought. Remember verse 1, it says, He has torn us to pieces. That reminds me of what happens back in chapter 5, verse 14, where God says He's going to tear the nation to pieces like a lion. Verse six, uh, Chapter 6, verse 1, He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. Oh. He has injured us, But he will bind up our wounds. Do you remember in chapter 5, God says he's going to be like rot to Judah. He's going to be like gangrene to them. But here he says he's going to heal. He's going to bind up their wounds. And I think there's actually an allusion in this text to how. I don't know how much Hosea understood this. But look at verse 2 of of chapter 6. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will restore us. Does that ring any bells? To you, the third day, the third day, the third day. It should ring a bell to you. <laughs> Sounds like the resurrection of Jesus. Now how could Hosea know about that? Can he really understand that? Can he really have that in mind? Except in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, Christ died for our sins and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. There's no place in the Bible that talks about the third day like Hosea chapter 6 verse 2. Maybe the prophet is writing more than he knows. On the third day, the third day he will restore us that we may live in his presence. What follows in Hosea 6 and 7 is so bad. What's here in this passage is so bad that we have to have a Savior, one who heals us by his own wounds, one who was injured for us on the cross so that we might live with him so that we can come to him with our need and our confidence, our dependent faith, that he's the one who saves. And he comes like the sun, the text says. Well, it's been miserable. God prepared us in the book of May for this analogy, didn't he? Eleven days, we almost set a record early May. Eleven days in a row it rained. It's been so rainy and cold and gray. And the text says, he comes like the sun. Oh. In 2006, it was an anniversary, on the anniversary day of the death of his assassination, uh, John Lennon's widow, Yoko Ono, put a full page ad in the New York Times. December 8th, Uh, She put this ad, and and she wanted. It was an invitation. This full-page ad. It was an invitation to make December eighth an International Day of Healing in honor of her husband John, who'd been assassinated. Let's let's make today an International Day of Healing. She said, "One day we will be able to say that we have healed ourselves, and by healing ourselves, we healed the world." Do you know her problem? she doesn't really understand the full extent of the problem. And because of that, she will never fully appreciate the solution. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we see in this text, this text that is uh, weighty and uh, thick, we see in this text ourselves, our, our condition, our society accurately portrayed, uh, full of violence, deception, loving pleasure, trying to hide from our accountability to you. This long, long list, seeking, seeking answers and hope in, in various things. We thank you, Father, that you through your Son on the third day restored us through the death and resurrection of our Savior, your great Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, as as we read this, we do pray that you would enable us to grow in our love and appreciation for what, what Jesus accomplished for us because of how bad off we really are. You are merciful to us, much more merciful to us and and gracious than we can imagine or that certainly we deserve. We thank you for your great kindness. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, amen.